when I was in seminary, there were some students who were uh, quite poor, were under a lot of financial stress, and had some of the temptations that accompanied that. And I want to give um, a testimony that one uh, seminary's wife, seminary student's wife gave uh, when they faced uh, kind of a pressure situation at work. Uh, this was actually not at our school. It was um, uh, one of the PCA ministers uh, told me about this, but it was um, a lady by the name of Karen. She worked at one of the major pharmaceuticals, and of course she was putting her husband through school. She was the one at that time that was putting all the food on the table. And one day at work, a very large uh, order of syringes became contaminated, and so it failed her inspection. And uh, when she went to tell her boss about it, he made a quick calculation of the costs that would be involved in redoing that huge order. And uh, he made a cost-effective decision. He told her to lie and to sign the order that they were not contaminated. Well, of course, she refused, and... Uh, the impasse that came between them resulted in a visit from the president of the company. He came and he said, you have to sign that. And she did not, was not willing to go along with it. He says, I'll give you the weekend to make your decision. But he made it quite clear that her job was in jeopardy. And actually, it was a lot more than just her job. Uh, the seminary education, their future plans, the kids' education. There were a lot of things that were hanging on her job at that time. And so that young couple was faced with a decision that went beyond some of the slogans and some of the theory that we have and some of the statements of our faithfulness to the Lord. Here was a rubber-meets-the-road decision that had to be made within two days that was going to affect them for quite some time. And I tell you, every Christian is faced with those decisions from time to time. You've already been faced with them, no doubt. You will be faced with them uh, in the future, if you desire to please the Lord. It may be pressures from your employer. It may be pressures from your employees or from your family or your friends. It may be the desires of your own flesh. It may be financial pressures. But that is the kind of thing that Daniel was facing right here. And I want to draw some lessons from what uh, Daniel was faced with. And the first one is that this was such a little thing. Such a little issue in one sense of the term. Look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Now people, commentators, have puzzled over that passage for years. Why would these delicacies and this wine have, uh, in any sense, contaminated him? Because there were other people in the empire at that time who ate from the king's table, his delicacies, his wine. You can think of Esther, you can think of Mordecai, uh, you can think of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they were blessed by the Lord. So what is going on here? And there have been a lot of explanations as to what exactly this defilement was. Now, some have said, well, perhaps it was um, you know, a violation of some ceremonial law that would have made him ritually impure. And that possibly could have been a factor in it with regard to the delicacies. We're not exactly told, but it does not explain the wine. Uh, others have said, well, maybe this was offered up to idols and he felt he could not therefore eat of it. But many commentators have pointed out, well, that's not actually an adequate explanation because we have evidence that everything was offered up to the idols, including the vegetables that Daniel would have eaten. Others have said, well, perhaps this was some kind of a covenanting when you're eating of this 
particular delicacy, some kind of a covenanting between the king and his idols. Now, that's pure conjecture. We don't know. I have another conjecture and have no idea about that, that perhaps Daniel had a Nazarite vow uh, which uh, would have kept him from, from, uh, from eating of these things um, you know, for perhaps a period of time. But the, the food and the, uh, the wine itself was not such a big deal. Back in Israel, uh, he no doubt had partaken uh, of both, both of those, uh, had partaken of delicacies. God is not a killjoy when it comes to food. You look at Christ's life. He enjoyed food. Uh, God did not put um, taste buds in our mouths that like brownies just to torture us here on earth, okay? Uh, he is a, a person who has given us enjoyment and fullness in life. So whatever the reason was that Daniel was, was uh, uh, denying himself and felt that God had called him to do that, um, uh, it, it was something where God had temporarily perhaps called him to a work of denial. Now, Daniel, to salve his uneasy conscience, could have taken a don't-ask-don't-tell kind of a policy. He just said, well, I'm just going to enjoy it, and we're just not going to worry about what it was exactly. And that may have been uh, the way that Esther and Mordecai had approached it. We're not exactly sure. Um, But uh, it was obvious that with Mordecai and Esther, who are explicitly said to have eaten the delicacies and the wine from the king's table, they did not have any conscience problems about it. Uh, They apparently had not been convicted about what Daniel was being convicted of. And that's the first principle that I want to uh, uh, press home to you is that we must not live our lives based on someone else's conscience. Okay? Uh, If God has convicted you about something and he's not convicted some other brother about that at this point, you can't ignore God's conviction just because your brother is oblivious to it. It's before God that you stand and fall, and it's to God that you must answer. And really, there are no issues that are too small. If God convicts you of things, then you need to abandon those things. And it may be a temporary thing that God is uh, asking you to give up. But in many ways, Daniel's usefulness for the kingdom was dependent upon what seemed to be a very trivial, very small, mundane issue of what shall I eat or what shall I not eat. And it's in the little areas of life that some of the major bridgeheads have been made into enemy territory. And I think it's true of every Christian's life. If you look at Esther, you look at um, Mordecai, you'll see other little things that God tested them on. But God will test each one of us on these areas. And there's three applications I want to make for that first point. First application. The best time to take a moral stand is early. As soon as the issue comes up, Daniel did not wait until he had been elevated to a position of social strength in order to make this decision. He made up his mind right away, and I think it's essential that the moment we are confronted with issues, we take our stands because otherwise it becomes harder and harder to make that stand. The moment you walk onto that new job and you see those alluring temptations, You've got to make your stand known. Stand known. Uh, it may be the first hour that you unpack your bags when you go to college. Or it may be um, when you're uh, going to a hotel or a motel room on your business trip. It may be right at that point 
the decision comes. Do I tell the manager to turn off the cable because I don't want to watch those programs? Or do you just allow your curiosity uh, to go? Uh, don't wait until you are in a position of social strength to be able to make those kinds of decisions because otherwise you may not have the moral strength or the moral courage to be able to make those decisions. The little areas are the areas that test us and make us either stronger or make us weaker. Second application, we've got to always be on guard about the little things of life. You know, most of us are on guard about those big things, you know, protecting ourselves against adultery or protecting ourselves against stealing. And we let a lot of the little things go by, and yet Scripture indicates that it's in the little areas where many times the most damage is done. The image that's used in Scripture is that the little foxes spoil the vines. Uh, termites do a whole lot more damage to houses than tornadoes and earthquakes put together. Uh, cigarettes have caused more fires than volcanoes have. Uh, you know, more heartaches are caused by little words and little deeds than sometimes the open, obvious hatred that the world may bring against a person. And one undiplomatic word can start a war. Those little things are the things we need to be on guard against. And you'll find in Scripture many times God honors His saints because they have taken stands in those little areas. So the first application is the best time to take a stand is early. Second, be on guard over those little things. And the third application is almost always the biggest, most significant tests rest on our faithfulness in small things. We have a tendency of playing mental games with ourselves about how you know, if the communists uh, took us into prison and said, uh, you uh, have to deny your faith or you're going to lose your life, you know, that we'd stand firm for the Lord. We think about those things are all theoretical, but we let a lot of little issues in our lives go by the board. And yet it's in those little areas that our integrity is eroded and uh, in which we're going to find our honesty, our chastity, our faithfulness, little by little being worn away to the point that when the big issues come, we're not going to have the strength to stand up. And so uh, it's not enough to play mental games about what we might do theoretically in the future if we're goofing up on the, uh, the harsh realities of the rubber meets the road issues. Future conflicts will be a lot easier if we're faithful right here in the now. And I know there are some of you, I've talked with you about these issues, the little issues you don't want to deal with. If you don't deal with the little issues now, it's going to be harder and harder in the future to deal with the issues that Satan confronts you with. Well, let's go on. Let's show that this decision had the potential of being a very costly decision. And that's not a contradiction of point number one. I've deliberately phrased the points in a way in which we tend to rationalize our sins. Uh, for example, when we're thinking about doing something and uh, somebody says that's a sin, we try to convince ourselves, oh, it's such a little deal. You know, God wouldn't worry about that. It's, it's just a, a tiny thing. But when we're not successful about that, we're thinking of the costs of obeying the Lord on that. Suddenly it becomes a great big deal. God wouldn't want me to lose my job. Uh, he wouldn't want uh, people to stop respecting me, would, they, would he? You know, I might lose my wife over this issue or, or whatever the thing might be. And I tell you, our mind can play such psychological tricks on us that in one moment we're treating that issue as being 
oh, such an insignificant thing, the Lord wouldn't even worry about it. And then we turn around and we say, oh, this is such a big thing, there's no way I could handle it. God would not make me do that. And I want you to look at the potential cost here. Uh, verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. But why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Now, if the chief of the eunuchs was fearful of the king over that food issue, how much more so should Daniel? Uh, if he could have lost his head, Daniel could have as well. Now, with you, it uh, may not be losing your head, but it may be losing your job over some decision that came up. Uh, it may be losing your self-respect or your pride or something else that you value very much. Or it may be simply the cost of having to fight the desires and the cravings of your flesh. See, Daniel had appetites just like we do, and I'm sure his mouth watered over the food that he had the potential of eating. That's why it's called delicacies. It was great-looking food in verse 8. So there was a cost in Daniel saying no to this food in obedience to the Lord. But I want, you, I want to point out that there is a cost to every decision of integrity that you might make. We tend to think only of the cost that comes you know, in obeying the Lord, uh, but there's a cost in the other direction as well because God's going to make sure there's a cost if we disobey Him. Satan's going to make sure there's a cost if we do obey Him. You cannot avoid the cost. Christ says, if you are a disciple of mine, you can't avoid the cost of taking up your cross and following me. Christ said, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And again, there are people in this congregation who do not want to take the costs that are involved in making the right decision in some of the little issues that you are being faced with. You don't find it worthwhile. And let me assure you, just like that young couple, if you think that it's not profitable, that it's not worthwhile, you're going to find a far greater cost in disobeying the Lord. See, the neat thing about the cost that we have with God and taking up our cross is He helps us to bear the cross. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We're trading in one cost for another cost, and Satan usually defers the cost. So it seems a little easier, but down the road, it's going to be a very, very severe cost that we will bear. The third point says that Daniel's decision was a gracious decision. Look at the last clause of verse 8. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs, notice he doesn't demand, says he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Here's how the NIV words it. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. He asked for permission. And his whole attitude, his whole demeanor was so good that it says in verse 9 that the chief of the eunuchs, that official there, really liked Daniel. He found favor. He found goodwill in the eyes of that official. Daniel did not send around leaflets encouraging a riot. We want better food. Uh, he did not uh, tr try to have a protest movement or start a hate campaign. He didn't try to embarrass his superior by putting his superior on the spot. He didn't start a boycott campaign. Instead, he responded to his situation in a way that showed respect, showed sensitivity, 
to the problems that he could be creating for his superior. Now, to balance that out, I should point out that that um, Daniel had already made up his mind. It didn't matter what his superior decided, he was not going to eat that food. So there was a principal decision there, but he tried to bring any positive steps that he could and, and tried to avoid confrontation. And there's a couple applications I want to make from that. First of all, try not to put your superiors on the spot. Uh, try not to bring the conflict there. There are times when God calls us to bring a prophetic rebuke, uh, especially if a person's called as a prophet. You know, there are uh, rebukes that were even brought against kings of the lands. But you know, all through Proverbs, all through Scripture, I think the emphasis is that we ought to, as much as lies within us, to try to live peaceably with all men. I, w- I was told about a businessman who said that he was done and through with hiring Christians because of how many times he had been put on the spot with their scruples. Now, I don't know what the situation was about. It may have been unavoidable uh, by the Christians. Sometimes that's the case. 1 Peter 3.15 says, we ought to always give a defense, but not in an ordinary way. Listen to how the verse goes on after it says, giving a defense of the hope that's within us. He says, with meekness and respect, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So here's the unbelievers. They're, defi- uh, they're reviling me, speaking against me, but it says we're supposed to respond to them with meekness and respect. One person said this, Daniel learned how to take a strong stand for the Lord in a way that showed the greatness of God, not in a way that left people staring at Daniel himself. There's a huge difference between the two. Secondly, if one door closes, um, you might want to check and see if there's another way that we can go. Because in verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs basically says, no, Daniel, I cannot fulfill your request because my head's going to be um, on the platter. And so Daniel, he, he goes to the immediate supervisor and he says, you know, can't we work out something here? There's more than one way to skin a cat. And uh, if we can live righteously and have our superior's favor, and we can live righteously and not have our superior's favor, I mean, obviously, the former is better. Sometimes that's not, a, not possible, but Paul said, as much as lies within us, strive to live peaceably with all men. So we do need to take a strong stand, but the way we do it needs to show uh, meekness and respect. A fourth principle I want to draw from this passage is that your decisions will be tested. And Daniel was willing to be tested. Verses 11 through 16. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be examined before you and the countenances of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. There was not only humility and graciousness about their response, but a willingness to be tested. Now, to me, that shows that Daniel had a trust that doing things God's way pays off. Now, it may not have looked like it. Here he was going for the perhaps less nutritious or the the poorer of the meals, And yet he had a a belief, if I obey God, God will come through. 
And even if he does, I'm going to serve him. But it has a trust that God's ways are best. Now, verses 14 through 16 describe the testing. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenance appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Now, I just want to make a side note. It doesn't have a great deal to do with uh, this sermon. But I want those of you who have been starving yourselves, uh, treating your body harshly in order to maintain that artificial 20th century weight. You know, what's the ideal weight and trying to stay skinny and thin. That This passage says that that pleasant plumpness there was a blessing from God. God blessed them, it says, by making them better and fatter in flesh. Better and fatter. I mean, the two go hand in hand. They're not contradictory. Okay? Do I hear any amens? <laughs> better and fatter. I see some people shaking their heads. But really, I think the modern weight loss obsession is just as idolatrous as gluttony is. Okay, there's two ways that you can be idolatrous. You can be so focused on what you want the world to see you as, your beauty, your appearance, and even then you're probably always thinking about food. Oh, I wish I could have that. And you're, you're always obsessed with that. Either way, it can be idolatrous. And that's one of the reasons why I've appreciated the Way Down Clinic is because the focus is really, in the losing of weight, the focus is on God, it's not on harsh treatment of the body. It's enjoying the good gifts that God has given, but it's looking in terms of self-discipline under God's blessings. But anyway, that's just a, a freebie I threw in there as a side note. Verse 16. I'm sure some people are going to throw rocks afterwards. Some people will like it. But um, verse 16 goes on. It says, Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. But don't feel like one decision is going to be the end of your testing. Many times God draws that out over a period of time, and it's for your good. He wants to make sure you really are resolved in your heart to serve the Lord, and it's healthy. Now, if the world was to test us socially and academically and in terms of productivity and in other ways, how would we come out? Would we come out ahead of the world like those four young men did. The Puritans, when they preached, they used to tell the congregations over and over again that as Christians, we must excel in the things that we do. We have to have quality workmanship, and you must be the best mother that you can be with the giftings God has given to you. You must be the best printer, the best painter, or whatever calling God has given to you. We must seek to excel. These people were... Uh, not just tested in their physical appearance, they were tested academically and in other areas as well. Now, we're not all called to be academics, okay? We're not all called to be mothers. But in the areas God has called you to be, if you can use your gifts to the best of your abilities, God will prosper you and he will multiply your efforts many times over. And that's the last point that I want to look at, that this was a rewarded decision in verses 17 through 21. Verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's interesting because I'm sure Daniel and those uh, other three friends had academic gifts. 
I'm sure they worked very, very hard at their studies, but it says here, God was the one who gave them that knowledge, that wisdom. He was the one who blessed that. And when we do have skills in a given area, many times the temptation is not to acknowledge God's blessing in doing that and recognize day by day we are dependent upon Him. I know this has happened to me in the past. <clears throat> uh, one of the areas I've been really, because I'm so results-oriented and so goal-oriented, the temptation is when I've got an extra, extra busy day, instead of doing like Luther and saying, I've got to get up and pray longer, maybe I ought to cut down on the devotions or skip them altogether, and find your day just totally unproductive. It's just like you're not, you're spinning your wheels. You can't get anywhere. Now, just this past week, I experienced again this uh, on Thursday. I had so much to do and so little time to do it. Temptation was to cut down on the prayer, but I knew that is my calling. I have to spend time in prayer. So even though it looked like it was going to be impossible to get done, I prayed. I offered myself up to the Lord, asked Him for wisdom, and I found myself far more productive. In fact, I got what would have normally taken me six and a half hours, I got done in two hours and ten minutes. And the Lord is faithful to do that so many times when we acknowledge it's not because of our smarts, it's not because of our skills that we are dependent moment by moment upon Him. He blesses us. He pours out His grace in our lives. Verses 18 and 19. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. The thing I like about that is that Nebuchadnezzar thought he had selected these men. God lets us know, no, I selected them. In fact, I selected them so that they could take over the kingdom, <laughs> so that they could influence and advance the cause of Christ in that pagan land. And you know, God does that for us as well whether you're in the home or outside of the home, no matter what your giftings are, God has beautifully crafted those together and placed you where you are for such a time as this. And you need to look to the Lord with excitement and say, Lord, I'm excited about what you have for me. And I praise you that you have providentially placed me in this place to serve your kingdom. And verse 20 says, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his kingdom. It was the Lord who gave this just when they needed it. And he doesn't always give grace to us when we don't need the grace. He doesn't always give wisdom for everything we'd like to know. But in James, it says, if we really need the wisdom and we ask of him in faith, he will give it. He will give it. The Lord blesses those who come to Him in faith. We'll end with verse 21. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. You read through the book and the time span that he's talking about there, and you'll see that's actually a rather significant thing because there were not only changes of administration, there was one empire overthrowing another empire. And yet, during a time when you'd think he would have been pitched out, Daniel continued throughout all of that time. God preserved him, he protected him, he blessed him until his purposes for Daniel had been finished. And you know, we can count on the same thing, that we will never die before it's God's time for us to die. If we are being faithful in his cause, we are seeking to serve him. I want my life to count for eternity. 
I do not want to be put on a shelf by the Lord. I want my time to be used for His kingdom. I want His pleasure to be upon me. I don't care if the world recognizes me as a success, and I don't care if uh, the church recognizes that. Uh, what I want is God's favor to rest upon me. And if you desire that as well, let me tell you, remind you once again, that it really revolves around faithful decisions of integrity, decisions to follow the Lord. It's my prayer that each one of you would be faithful in your callings to Him. You're all going to be facing the same kinds of decisions that Daniel did. In different ways, but at root, it will be the same at this time as well. Father, we pray for Sean Collins once again as well and ask for Your healing hand to come upon him uh, that uh, You would uh, enable uh, this uh, infection to be completely uh, and quickly cleared up so that he could resume the work that uh, you have called him to. And Father, we pray for any other needs that may be in this congregation. There are others who are sick, people who are weak, people who have perhaps uh, frustrations, uh, perhaps who have been wounded and need your healing and your encouragement. Uh, Father, perhaps those who have financial needs. Father, whatever the needs that are being offered to up to you at this time, we pray through the strong name of Jesus that you would supply those needs. Father, we pray for our country that you would have mercy upon it. Father, there are so many people in government who make decisions not on principle, but make decisions based on pragmatism, willing to compromise on the little things so that they can make headway on the big things, little realizing that all of those little things are destroying their integrity. Have mercy upon them, Father. Draw them to faith in You and enable the believers who are there to be encamped round about by Your angels. Protect them, keep them. Father, we pray for our representatives and our senators from this state. Father, that You would guide them into truth, that You would give them a passion for integrity, and Father, that you would protect them in the awful morass of evil that is in Washington, D.C. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon our nation and not judge us, but Father, that you would lift your hand and that you would once again bring about your restraining grace, that you would cause the church to rise up, being salt and light. And Father, that you would scatter the darkness that has been clouding our land. Father, we pray for other nations that are under the grip of darkness. We pray for the missionaries that are there and the churches that have been struggling in those regions. You have said that Jesus will build the church and that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Father, by faith we lay claim to that and we ask that rather than struggling, these churches might make advances that would make the world say, how have these turned the world upside down? Father, grant that Your Word would prosper in this day. Not only in the churches in Omaha, but Father, wherever Your Word is being preached, that it would be accompanied by the power of Your Holy Spirit in accomplishing great things for Your glory. And Father, we'll be sure to give You all the praise and all the glory.